We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, continuing our exploration of Peter Singer's book on ethics, we are now doing Is There Moral Progress? Okay. After a century that saw two world wars, the Nazi Holocaust, Stalin's Gulag, the killing fields of Cambodia, and the atrocities in Rwanda and Darfur, the belief that we are progressing morally has become difficult to defend. Yet there is more to the question than extreme cases of moral breakdown. Okay, so <coughs> uh, I think Steven Pinker is his name. He argues that we have actually been improving um, in morality, especially in terms of violence. He says that if you actually look at the overall trajectory of violence in human history, violence is, is actually decreasing. And that's a sign that, uh, I don't remember if he takes it this far, but that's a sign that morality in humanity is actually increasing. There is progress taking place, right? On the flip side, if you look at the 20th century, it was far and away the bloodiest century in human history. So it's not just two world wars. The number of civilians killed, I think, in the first world war was something like 20 million and try to even conceive of that, 20 million in the span of about a decade. And then the number of people killed in the Second World War is something like 60 million. And that's just civilians, that's not soldiers. When you add soldiers, then these numbers go up to something like 120, 175 million people. Try to conceive how many people were killed just in those wars. And then Stalin, under him, so in the Holocaust, 6 million people are killed. Uh, under Stalin, 30 million people are killed. And then you have places like Cambodia. This is a Khmer Rouge. Uh, if you really want to get insights on ISIS, uh, actually look at, look at what's what took place in Cambodia um, under the Khmer Rouge. There's a lot of similarities. And then he used another example, uh, Rwanda. So Rwanda, the genocide, the most recent one 20 years ago, took place in 100 days and in 100 days, a million people were killed. So that's 10,000 people a day. Uh, wait, you said 100 million? Uh, so the population of Rwanda is 10 million. Oh, okay. One million people were killed. And, and, the popu and, and so that's 10,000 people per day. And this isn't by bombs. This is by people being shot or hacked to death one by one. Right. And then on top of that, you have Darfur, which is 10 years ago, right? <coughs> what, when did the genocide in Rwanda take place? Uh, genocide in Rwanda is like 1995 or 1994. I want to say it's 95. I think I met refugees. Oh, I had a student here who was a survivor. Um, she, uh, what was her story? Oh, you remind me of someone else. Um, she, got, she was about six years old. No, she might have been six months old. Maybe six years old. She, she was saying that... Um, she got separated from her mom, and she then was evacuated to Kenya, and then she ran into her mom again in Kenya. Yeah. And then in Vegas, I met the Mufti of Rwanda, and he was saying he traveled all across uh, the world trying to raise funds for Rwanda, and nobody was giving him any money. Nobody cared. Yeah. Where'd you meet the, these refugees? Uh, when I was in Malawi, I was shadowing a doctor, and so we went to the clinic, and there was this older lady who came in, 
and she was complaining of back pain. So he was like asking her, he's like, oh, so like what happened? Did you ever fall or injure yourself? And she's like, oh yeah, when I was running away from the people who were trying to kill me, I had fallen and she fell on her back and she injured herself. And then when she fell, they basically took a machete to her face. Subhanallah. They killed her husband and her children in front of her. And she was able to escape somehow, but uh-huh. yeah, so she just like came in for back pain. And then, like, she just, like, talked about that, like, it was, so I don't know, it was just really, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the, the, the things that uh, people experience in this world, subhanAllah, wow. I, I mean, I remember a conversation I had with this student of mine in a different class where everybody's much older. He was, he was an old guy, not a, not a Muslim. He was probably close to 60 years old, maybe even over 60. And he was Jewish, and he would talk about how, like, he, he can't have faith because of how much you know, violence and blood there is uh, in the world. Like, he just, uh, he, uh, he's basically too um, numb or he's too despairing about, uh, about all that. And so related to that, there is this question, is there moral progress, right? Or is humanity actually getting worse? And to add more to this conversation, Dr. King, Martin Luther King says, uh, he has that famous quote, that I always forget the exact wording. The moral arc uh, of the universe bends towards justice. So his basic point is that overall, in the long term, humanity does get closer and closer to justice. But then there's this contemporary thinker, I don't know if you're familiar with him, ta Coates. So his name is spelled, uh, tell me when you're ready. T-A-N-E-H-I-S-I. The last name is C-O-A-T-E-S. C-O-T-E-S. He's a good thinker to, to, to read. And he says, no, the moral arc of the universe does not bend towards justice. If anything, it probably bends in the opposite direction. Although there is a difference, Dr. King is uh, is a practicing Christian, and Ta-Nehisi Coates is an atheist. So this becomes one of the big questions, right? One, you know, is there, you know, this natural morality? But now, is there pro- moral progress in the overall span of the human race? So is Coates' reason for saying that? We're about to read. Well, he's basically saying, look at, look at, you know, life under Dr. King, look at life now, things are not better, they're worse, right? So Dr. King is in the 1960s, and so here we are 40, 50 years later, 50 years later, you know? yeah, 50 years later, and, um, um, you know, things have not gotten even remotely better, and in most measurements, things have gotten worse. And another way to think about this is he's just less hopeful, less optimistic in general. But have they gotten worse? Like, well, that's the big question, right? Because maybe it was worse before, but we just didn't have cameras to record it. Could be. Could be, yeah. So, so let's see what uh, Singer is saying. Whenever you're ready. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the United Nations General Assembly's adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In response to the crimes committed during World War II, the Declaration sought to establish the principle 
that everyone is entitled to the same basic rights, irrespective of race, color, sex, language, religion, or other status. So, perhaps we can judge moral progress by asking how well we have done in combating racism and sexism. Okay, so, that would be one thing to check. What is the, uh, what is, uh, what can we deduce about the evolution of race and the evolution of sexism? Assessing the extent to which racism and sexism have actually been reduced is a daunting task. Nevertheless, recent polls by worldpublicopinion.org shed some indirect light on this question. The polls, involving nearly 15,000 respondents, were conducted in 16 countries, representing 58% of the world's population. Azerbaijan, China, Egypt, France, Great Britain, India, Indonesia, Iran, Mexico, Nigeria, the Palestinian territories, Russia, South Korea, Turkey, Ukraine, and the United States. In 11 of these countries, most people believe that, over their lifetimes, people of different races and ethnicities have come to be treated more equally. Okay, so it sounds like people are saying things have improved. Mm -hmm. so, uh, this is a, a subtle note. So this is the British guy. Right, this author, and um, Peter Singer. Yeah, okay. and so it's probably not an accident that he mentions the Palestinian territories, and does not mention Israel. Um, this is something that's probably uh, very British about him. Yeah, uh, uh, in the way uh, American society tends to be very pro-Israel, British society often tends to be very anti-Israel. Subtle side point. On average, 59% say, say this, with only 19% thinking that people are treated less equally, and 20% saying that there have been no change. People in the United States, Indonesia, China, Iran, and Great Britain are particularly likely to perceive greater equality. Palestinians are the only people of whom a majority see, sees less equality for people of different racial or ethnic groups, while opinion is relatively evenly divided in Nigeria, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Russia. And so again, so it follows what the, what the Palestinian view is, right? Yeah. Okay, let's continue. An even stronger overall majority, 71% regards women as having made progress toward equality, although once again, the Palestinian territories are an exception, this time joined by Nigeria. Russia, Ukraine, and Azerbaijan again have significant minorities, saying that women are now treated less equally than they once were. In India, although only 53% say that women have gained greater equality, an additional 14% 14, 14 say that women now have more rights than men. Presumably, they were thinking only of those females who are not aborted because prenatal testing has shown them not to be male. Mm -hmm. Great. So, so yeah, in, in a few societies in the world, um, number one, you can only have one child. Right, so like in China, you can only have one child, mm -hmm. and apparently I have uh, I've heard this anecdotally. I've not seen this in terms of data. Many prefer a boy, and then you have the case in India, where apparently uh, when people find out in some regions, again I don't know how much data there is to support this, in some regions that if the if the couple finds out that they're having a daughter, then they then they choose abortion. Overall, it seems likely that these opinions reflect real changes, and thus are signs of moral progress toward a world in which people are not denied rights on the basis of race, ethnicity, or sex. That view is backed up by the poll's striking results, very widespread rejection of inequality based on race, ethnicity, or sex. On average, 90% of those asked said that equal treatment for people of different races or ethnic origins is important. 
and in no country were more than 13% of respondents prepared to say that equal treatment is not important. Okay. So everyone is, many people across the world are saying things have improved, and the vast majority of people are saying that it's, uh, this equality is important. Okay. But then... When asked about equal rights for women, support was almost as strong, with an average of 86% rating, rating it important. Significantly, these majorities also existed in Muslim countries. In Egypt, for example, 97% said that racial and ethnic equality is important, and 90% said that equality for women is important. In Iran, the figures were 82% and 78% respectively. Mm -hmm. Compared to just a decade before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this represents a significant change in people's views. Equal rights for women, not simply suffrage, but also working outside the home or living independently, was still a radical idea in many countries. Openly racist ideas prevailed in Germany and the American South, and much of the world's population lived in colonies ruled by European powers. Mm -hmm. Today, despite what happened in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, and appeared to be on the verge of happening after the recent disputed election in Kenya, no country openly accepts, accepts racist doctrines. Okay, so what is he saying then about race? He's saying that it is, oh, that race, like racism is on the decline because mm -hmm. people aren't openly accepting it anymore. Yeah. Whereas that was okay back then. Yeah, and key word is that it's not openly. But then, what about women's rights? Let's continue. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said about equal rights for women. In Saudi Arabia, women are not even permitted to drive a car, let alone vote. In many other countries, too, whatever people may say about gender equality, the reality is that women are far from having equal rights. This may mean that the surveys I have quoted indicate not widespread equality, but widespread hypocrisy. Nevertheless, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. I never really understood what that meant, but let's keep going. Yeah. Hypocrisy is the tribute yeah. that vice pays to virtue. And the fact that racists and sexists may pay this tribute is an indication of some moral progress. Okay, so, so aside from this hypocrisy point, what are these last two paragraphs saying? that because they have to hide that racism or sexism now, that is an indication of moral progress. Mm -hmm. so, so before that point, um, they're saying that, okay, in the voting, everyone is saying life is getting better, mm -hmm. right, for, uh, in terms of gender equality, right? The vast majority of people are. And a minority of people are saying it's not even important, right? But then when you actually look at stats... <clears throat> Things are not improving. Yeah. Uh, and so then that sounds like hypocrisy, right? Or at least inconsistency. So on the one hand, everyone's saying, yeah, we should do it. On the other hand, in, on the, when, when we get into reality, no, it doesn't work. It's not happening. But the fact that people are at least openly talking about it, which they couldn't do before, um, that is at least one sign of progress. See what we're saying? Yeah. So progress isn't really happening in terms of action, but it is happening in the sense that it is becoming a common idea, which will then hopefully in a generation or two then become a reality. Yeah. Words do have consequences, and what one generation says but does not really believe, the next generation may believe and even act upon. Public acceptance of ideas is itself progress of a kind. But what really matters is that it provides leverage that can be used to bring about more concrete progress. For that reason, we should greet the poll, the poll results positively and resolve to close the gaps that still exist between rhetoric and reality. So what do you think?
because he's calling out this uh, this contradiction, right? But I think it's giving yeah. a sense of hope. Yeah. And that in itself is probably also a sign of progress. So then what about what you were saying about Tiernan Hesse? Coates? Well, if we get time, let's also read him. So he, he writes almost exclusively about race. Okay. Uh, he himself is black American race in Baltimore. And, um, um, and he became very, very popular in the past two years. He has a, recently lar- a recent large essay um, talking about the fact that his president uh, is a black man, right, Obama. And he has this one paragraph where he says that proof of racism in America, that racism is still here, is that all of, there's many, many counties that Obama won that in this last election went to Trump, okay? And one thing to, one way to think about this is that Obama had to be perfect. Harvard educated, right? Um, super wholesome family, super dignity, okay? He had to be perfect uh, as part of the process of winning a lot of these counties, you know, where he had a lot of white poverty. And then Trump wins these, these counties and Trump is the one of the most vile, disgusting people in the history of the American public. And he says that's proof of American racism, that everything is still just as racist as before. Okay, but you were also talking about, he was the one who said about, wait, who was the one who said about um, because there's suffering in the world? I forgot what you said about that. Oh, this 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 old man who's a student of mine, oh. who was just talking about you know all the suffering that you know he's seen or heard about in the world. It it's basically it's made it like for him he just can't have faith. He's like given up. I don't know how much faith he's had in his whole life, but I'm kind of seeing it as I get older and older. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, when when he told me this this was like twelve thirteen years ago, so I was significantly younger. And back then, I thought, you know, how could you say that, right? There's so much hope. But now me, now I'm in, mid, I'm in my mid-40s, mashallah, um, I understand more and more, like, you know, his sentiments, right? So what would be your response to him now? Compared to I would still say, <clears throat> well, I would put it like this, what's the, what's the other option? Uh, I had a conversation last week with a leader from the Jewish community. And I asked him, <clears throat> do you still have hope about resolution in the Middle East? And immediately he said no. Right? And he talked about it for a while. But then I said to him, then what's the other option? Right? If you have no hope, then you're basically saying this is just going to be a sur- uh, uh, survival of the fittest, and whoever winds up wiping out the other one wins. Right? And that's not an option. So in one way, I'm saying that my response to both of these people, as well as more than that, a reminder like to myself trying to cope with all this, is like, so an article like this is giving hope, but what I'm saying is that we have an obligation to have hope. Because the other option is despair to give up and to let the whole world fall apart. 
So like if I if so I often tell people who've come to my office the proof the, the reason that you the proof that you have hope is the fact that you've come here. But the fact that I'm doing my job is also proof that I have hope. Right? Otherwise I'd say, you know, then give up. Do you think sometimes it's not reasonable to have hope in situations that are I don't know? Well, I'll put it like this, like, okay, so there's unrealistic hope. And unrealistic hope, it would be like, you know, me dreaming that I can be Michael Jordan, right? That's not realistic. Um, but in terms of solving problems, you know, we have the ayah that Allah Ta'ala, if you have taqwa, Allah Ta'ala will give you away from where you weren't expecting. And that's one of the lessons of the story of Bani Israel. They reached the river or the sea, and they're about to get slaughtered by Pharaoh's people. And then Allah Ta'ala gives them a pathway from where they weren't expecting right through the sea and so read that literal as a miracle read it metaphorically as that you know Allah will give you a pathway from where you weren't expecting and so that by definition is hope right so when it comes to finding healing or solving a crisis a person always has to have hope that at the very least maybe a door will open from where we weren't expecting but that part is not unrealistic that part's realistic but beyond that, everything else, you have to be realistic. Just like, okay, me sitting here, um, I'm not expecting to solve the crisis in the Middle East or Kashmir or whatever. Um, that would be unrealistic, right? Uh, but if I was working on those things, or Syria, um, I should have hope. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, any other thoughts or questions? Okay, so when people are struggling with hope, yeah. what would you advise them to do? So at one level, <clears throat> uh, see if they can force themselves to have hope. Because what do you lose? If you already don't have hope, then you're already giving up. So you have, no, you, you have nothing to lose if you have hope, except for the fear that your, hope's gonna, your, your optimism is going to get shattered. But if you're already at the state where you have no hope, then you've got nothing to lose, right? But then on top of that, uh, a person has to do some, some serious introspection, both about their current situation and how many good things there are there, mm -hmm. as well as how their life has played out. So even if their life has been a series of, of tragedies, uh, which is not true for most people, um, there's a lot of reason in their history to have hope. And thus, there's a lot of reason to have hope about their future too. Sometimes people, when something wonderful happens to them, they get afraid, okay, Allah's just given me this, but it may not happen again. Or you could take it from Allah's given me this, so who knows what other wondrous things Allah might do for me later on. You got nothing to lose. Because mm. if you're already in despair, you're already disappointed. Yeah. And like also prayer. Yeah. Prayer by definition is hope, right? So we were talking about Pascal's wager, right? About belief, do the same thing for hope. You know, what do you got to lose? Although, William James says that that's like a last resort. Yeah, thing. I'm saying it as a last resort. Oh. Yeah. Like yeah. that shouldn't be like a foundation. No, no. Yeah. 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 I think prayer would be, because like sometimes I feel like it's hard to find hope within yourself. And like sometimes I feel like it's hard to just force yourself to have hope. Mm -hmm. But recently, I don't know, I've been thinking about like what um, Ustad Nawam Ali Khan yeah. would say about prayer and how he would like, 
prayer is something that I need, and like without it, I just feel so incomplete. Mm-hmm. Like after those discussions that we had, mm-hmm. like I feel like I finally understand like that need mm-hmm. for prayer and how like. I don't know. I think that could be a good source. That's also true. This is what C.S. Lewis says about prayer, too. C.S. Lewis says, prayer is for me, not for God. Right? Which I think is half true. So, a place to really see this is the last ayah of Al-Baqarah. So, in the last ayah of Al-Baqarah, you know, it says, you know, Allah Ta'ala does not burden anyone more than they can bear. Right? La yukallifullahu nafsan illa wusaha. And then, later on in that same ayah, you're making a dua saying to Allah, you know, please don't hit us with anything we can't handle. Okay? The ayah already says he's not going to give you anything you can't handle. Okay? And yet, in the same ayah, you're making a dua, you know, please don't give me anything we can't handle. Okay? And so, when you're making dua to Allah, you are speaking to Allah, but you're also speaking to yourself. So, your dua is a request to Allah, but it's also a dhikr mm-hmm. to yourself. How is prayer for Allah? Meaning, uh, not in a sense of for Allah, but like, uh, not something Allah receives as something that helps him, but in the sense that you're actually asking Allah to do something for you. Right? So prayer... So, yeah, prayer itself is therapeutic, mm-hmm. but it should also be done with uh, the sense that, okay, Allah Ta'ala controls all, He can do anything. Yeah. Right? And the point is that every time you're making a prayer to Allah, you're asking Allah, please do this for me, whatever it is, big or small. Um... But every du'a you're making is also an act of dhikr. Right. Reminding yourself that. That Allah is all-powerful. And he's listening. He is a samia. Right? Um, you know, um, that what, what else? You know, uh, I mean, he's, he's basically, you know, um, over all things able to do whatever. Yeah. That's built into your du'a. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Any last thoughts or questions? Um, I don't think so. Okay, cool. Okay. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafirika natubi ilayk wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.